today we're going to discuss various subjects, including inflation, its effect upon investments. And to start with, we're going to discuss how Williams Investment Management communicate information to their clients. Thank you, Ian. So we have to provide quarterly valuations. It's a regulatory requirement. And we keep clients up to date when we make changes to portfolios. And we also provide the end of year tax information for non-pension portfolios. Do you discuss things from time to time on the telephone with investors? Yes. I mean, we're always available to meet or to have chats with people. We're very happy to do that. Don't really hear from that many clients, to be quite honest with you. We are obliged to see clients on a fairly regular basis and make sure that their investment portfolios remain suitable and their uh, their circumstances haven't changed significantly. I always like to make sure that clients have got sufficient money for a rainy day. The stock market, as we all know, it can be volatile. And when you know you need some money in the future for a new car or your daughter's wedding or something, and the stock market is doing reasonably well, it's a good time to take money out. Too many people are over greedy. Many organisations, when you telephone, you have to press one if you need something, two if you need something else, three if you need something else, and it can get very frustrating. I'm assuming that being a smaller organisation, that contact with the partner who looks after a client's investments is much more direct. Is that the case? Very much so, Ian. This business is split into two, in terms of this industry split into two, I should say. So, The actual underlying investments are very subjective and it is not an exact science. On the other hand, administration is an exact science and there's no excuse for not getting it right. Everyone makes the odd mistake, but one of the biggest issues I have from potential new clients is them criticising their current provider. That can either be down to the fact that they can't get hold of the person they're wanting to speak to or the administration is is very poor. For example, valuations, which I look at having done the job for over 30 years, and it takes me five or 10 minutes to work out what the value is, uh, what's in an ISA, what's not in an ISA, uh, what the capital gains tax position is, whether they've made gains on various holdings or not. So that is always a, a problem or can be a problem. I was talking to a lawyer the other day who we've acted for for many years, and he introduced me to a colleague of his, and he said, uh, he introduced me and said, Duncan has the simplest valuations of any organisation which he has used in the past. I cannot see the point in making things overcomplicated and having endless pie charts, endless graphs, just to bamboozle people. It's very straightforward. You want to know what you are worth and what your investments have done during the last uh, three months uh, or six months or 12 months. Duncan, in this modern uh, internet age, are your clients able to access their details over their iPad, their phone or their laptop? Uh, The simple answer to that, Ian, is no, not at the moment. We have grave reservations about giving access to our data system, not because of not the individual client, of course, but we don't want to be subject to hacking. Um, We have all sorts of measures in place, but as we all know, it doesn't matter how many um, measures you have in place, people can still hack. So we don't allow that. And there's two good reasons for that, really. The first one is I don't think people should 
be looking at their valuations all the time. You invest for the long term, in my opinion. There was a famous case when a very wealthy family instructed a big organisation to to invest on their behalf for the long term. And he said, right, well, we'll be in touch after the first quarter. And he meant there the first quarter of a century. So I think that it is an error on the regulator's point of view, insisting on quarterly valuations. Really, you should only be looking at these, in my opinion, once every six or 12 months. If you trust what the the firm you've instructed is doing. If you are holding Nestle and Unilever, etc., as we do, then the chances are we're going to hold them forever. But that's not always the case. I suspect, really, what, what can cause confusion is that your business is called Williams Investment Management, not Williams Speculation Management. And speculators are the sort of people who need to look at the figures almost on an hourly basis. Is that right? That's absolutely right, Ian. I think the point is here, Ian, that whilst we don't allow currently internet access, it's something that we do look at and we monitor the demand. Currently, there isn't much demand from our particular client base. But a bigger point, I think, is that anybody who wants to ask us what their portfolio is worth, what they and what they've got in it, could they be sent an evaluation? Of course, any time they like. Thank you, Robert. And does your your information, Duncan, show what uh, dividend income a particular share has produced? Yeah, all information has to, I mean, it's, it's like a bank statement. All the dividends are there, all the interest payments are there. So, yeah, all that's there. And then the composite tax voucher goes out in May each year. But I would also say that, again, when choosing a manager, it's not only the quality of the paperwork, but it's dealing with issues. For example... An accountant rang up a couple of weeks ago and wanted to query a client's capital gains tax on the composite tax voucher. And we got back to them within half an hour. So I would hope there there is an added benefit for the client, because if you are an accountant and you find a bit of an issue when you're completing the tax return, you get an an answer immediately, then it's still fresh in the accountant's mind. If you take two months to get an answer, your client accountant has then got to revisit and get back up to date to where they were with your tax return. And obviously, you're not going to get your tax return for a while longer. So if you are dealing with faceless call centres and you've got to go through all the security measures, trying to get the right answer to the question can be very difficult. And as long as we have authorities in place, we can talk to clients, professional advisors, no problem at all. And just to clarify, the composite tax voucher which you issue in May for the tax returns. This takes away the requirement for an investor to hold all the individual tax vouchers, some of which there are for a year. So instead of submitting a huge pile of tax vouchers to the accountant, you simply provide one piece of paper. Correct, Ian. Those were the days when you had an infinite number of tax vouchers, um, yeah. which you had to send to your accountant and the contract notes for sales and purchases. Now, all the information's there on the composite tax voucher, which generally runs to about five pages. And on the assumption that either we've bought the stock or we've been told the acquisition costs, all the capital gains tax information is it's all there and it's, it's CGT's calculated for you. Thank you. I, I'd just like to tell you a tale about uh, an accountant in Borough Bridge who is trying to persuade a client of his, who is currently a client of a, a well-known high street bank to move his portfolio over 
uh, one of the reasons he wants him to do so is because even though this chap is wealthy and has a portfolio, I think, in excess of £2 million, the the bank buys and sells small bits of his portfolio on a very, very regular basis because that's what the robot does. And guess how long the CGT report was last year? You won't guess, so I'll tell you, 72 pages. So, you know, the client ultimately pays for that because the accountant has to wade through 72 pages of CGT calculations. We don't do that. Are you able to explain to us what is meant by the term inflation, what it is and how it affects investments and whether clients should be thinking about rebalancing their portfolios? Yes, um, I, I think the whole concept of rebalancing is, is moronic. As an investor, what one should be looking for is uh, is quality businesses and you want to keep them for as long as possible. To quote Buffett, his favourite holding period is forever. So the idea that one might rebalance every quarter, every six months, every five minutes, um, I think is is uh, is idiocy. So um, it's not something we'll be doing uh, or ever will be doing. If you are what I would define as an investor why would you rebalance if you've bought good businesses that you considered were the best that you could buy why would you then decide that you needed to sell them or buy something else to me such behavior doesn't make any sense at all rebalancing suggests a constant rotation of of investments within a portfolio it perhaps has some sense if what you're actually attempting to do is to try and guess what the stock market is going to do. But if you're a a true investor and you're buying businesses that you really want to own, as Warren Buffett would say, forever, then it makes no sense at all. Because why would excellent enterprises require replacement? Perhaps you have made a mistake, in which case you may need to sell them. But unless you have made an error, you want to own those businesses indefinitely. I do believe that inflation is coming. In fact, it's here already. You only need to walk around the supermarket or try hiring a tradesperson. It's the result of many things. And yes, some of it is to do with the opening up of economies uh, after the pandemic. Uh, Obviously, there are are supply shortages and bottlenecks. But I think there's far more going on other than that. We've had money printing that's been off the scale, really, since the financial crisis and we've never had any normal any form of normalization since then every country is doing it and uh, i seem to remember from o level economics a definition of inflation uh, was too much money chasing too few goods and after such an extended period of money printing uh, i think we're now seeing along with the end of the pandemic all that money leaching into the system and making everything more expensive. Really, it was absolutely predictable, but if monetary policy is undertaken in a manner similar to a banana republic, then it's not really surprising. We now have steeply negative interest rates, which means they are well below current rates of inflation. In the old days, interest rates would have been jacked higher in order to deliver some degree of real return for savers and to crush inflation. But in today's world, Nothing bad can ever happen. And in the US, we've got interest rates at virtually zero and inflation north of 5%. Every central banker 
maintains that the current rates of inflation are temporary, but uh, I would argue that that is not the case whatsoever. And the Governor of the Bank of England is saying similar things, but here again, we've got inflation that they're expecting to go to uh, towards 4%, and we've got base rates at 0.1%. Only an economist could not see what was actually inevitable, and uh, I suspect the situation will get worse. Inflation's not always bad for all businesses, is it? And no, that's very true, Ian. Some businesses do benefit from uh, inflation. There's no doubt about it. It, it tends to be the ones where uh, they can control the input prices. They tend to be big companies and they're able to increase their output prices fairly easily because, as Robert says, they're providing something which somebody may consider as a necessity. Marmite, deodorants, dishwasher tablets, magnums, etc. They're all regarded as, as necessities by certain people. People will be aware of the disgraced stock picker, Neil Woodford. I understand that there is a case pending against his organisation. Have you any thoughts about the Woodford saga? Uh, Yes, Ian. It's something which we followed for a long time. Neil Woodford came to fame in the early 2000s because he had famously not invested in TMTs, which was the technology sector in the late 1990s. So the performance of his fund at the time, Vesco Income, Invesco High Inc, was very good indeed. And then he left Invesco and set up his own business and attracted a huge amount of capital. And Williams Investment Management, we bought his fund because he had, uh, in our opinion, had done well over the long run. We met with him a few occasions subsequent to that and we were getting a bit nervous uh, with regard to the smaller companies which he had in his portfolio. Some of those companies were so small not only in their size but also the size within the portfolio that they even if they did brilliantly they weren't going to make a great deal of difference to the overall value of the fund if you like and the return which you were going to get so we were getting a bit disheartened met him a few times and decided that we would get out the fund was launched at a pound and i think from memory we sold at 105 and we moved on to pastures greener surprisingly there then was a run on the fund and he had ended up with a liquidity problem so mr woodford has been criticized significantly link asset management who were administrating the fund uh, they have been criticized and also the regulator because uh, it was on their watch or they should have been watching it and not a lot was done so consequently there was a class act um, and i think it's lee day who are uh, arranging that and they're planning to go to, to court i think personally what should have happened was that when there was a liquidity problem instead of the whole fund being taken off woodford and being liquidated which it was obvious it was going to take a long time to do that and everybody knew what his stocks were because he was totally transparent with all of his investments it was pretty obvious what the liquidators were going to be selling so those prices were marked down to the detriment of unit holders so on day one i would rather have seen the fund split in two fund a 
which would have been liquidated, and Fund B, which would have been left with Woodford to manage, but it would have been frozen for three or five years. I think that would have made a lot more sense. wouldn't have suited absolutely everybody, but you had a choice then. As a unit holder, you could go down one route or the other. But instead, they liquidated the whole lot. It's There's a lot of people out there who are very disgruntled, and this is the first court case. And it wouldn't surprise me if there are further um, court cases, because I think that um, I mean, there are some people out there who are nursing some very large losses. Thank you for that, Duncan. When you talk about liquidity, are you trying to explain to us that if you hold a company such as we mentioned it earlier today, Unilever, that there is always a large number of people who would be interested in buying Unilever, whereas a smaller company there may not be a large number of people wishing to buy their shares and consequently they're harder to sell. Absolutely. And so what happened was that when people started selling, it was a lot easier to sell the Unilevers of this world because the market is very liquid in Unilever. And consequently, he was allowed, I think it was about 10% in smaller companies. But as they was able to sell the bigger companies and not the smaller companies, the smaller companies became a bigger and bigger part of, of the portfolio. And that's when the, the administrator and the, the regulator got involved. And that's why they eventually suspended it. And is that compounded by the fact that with a smaller company, when you look at the share prices, the sale price is much smaller than the buying price? In other words, there's a greater spread. And so well, the lo- spread doesn't help. He was in some startups as well, which weren't even quoted, and some of the startups went bust. But in his defence, Oxford Nanopore has just come to the market and it's done very, very well indeed. It's been the most successful IPO, I think, this year. So he, he got certain things right, but he wasn't allowed to see those through to fruition. And of course, neither were his unit holders. Robert, the Woodford Fund, which Duncan has just talked about, wasn't his only fund, was it? Because there was a patient capital fund. Is there anything you'd like to say about that? Yes, thank you, Ian. Famously, the Patient Capital Fund was, I think, the biggest misnomer I've ever come across. I think the the general public could easily have thought to themselves, well, if this is a patient fund, then this is a solid, steady away stuff that I can just put in my um, retirement fund. And actually, it was far from it, which I think that's where Mr Woodford potentially is treading on thin ice. But that fund still exists, doesn't it? But it's got a different name. Correct. It uh, was taken over, if my memory serves me right, by Schroeder. And it's now called Schroeder Private Equity Fund, I think. And I have some of that stock, but I went in into patient capital with my eyes wide open. It's sitting at a loss, but to a certain extent, you know, the regulator can say, oh, I'm terribly sorry, dear investor, that you've lost money and I'm going to try and um, do something about that. But equity investment is is risk investment. And I'm happy to sit on that stock forever and a day if that's what it takes. I haven't got a lot of it, but it, it's a it's a sector of the market that I'm quite interested in. So I thought, well, I'll have some. We haven't bought it for, for clients, but we do hold some for ourselves. But those smaller companies, the startups, etc., because 
Woodford Equity Income was set up first, some of those holdings were put into the main fund. And that, in my opinion, should not have happened. And I think the other thing is, is that reading the prospectus for patient capital, etc., it sounded very much like a venture capital trust, which I bought for a game for myself 20 odd years ago. And therefore, it was immediately obvious it wasn't for clients. The venture capital trust typically raised about 10 to 20 million. And from memory, patient capital raised something like £800 million. So even at the start there, you had to question why it was so popular. And I think it was solely on Woodford's name. Duncan, at the current time, we got almost certain takeover of Morrison's and people will have varying amounts of Morrison's stock. And if they were clients of yours, looking at things in the much longer term, they may not have anticipated that a takeover would provide them with a potentially huge capital gains tax bill. How is it possible to mitigate the capital gains tax bill, which an unforeseen company takeover can generate? Thank you, Ian. At this stage, there isn't an awful lot you can do. I don't believe there's a loan note alternative, which has been offered in the past, and that could have helped. You obviously have a capital gains tax allowance of your own, and if you are married, your partner will have a capital gains tax allowance and you can transfer some of the shares to them. You might have losses in your portfolio, so it might be worth realising the losses, and then you can reduce your capital gains tax liability. I think the main point is, is that if you had been a large long-term investor in Morrison's, then what you should have been doing is putting your Morrison shares into your individual savings account each year. So you could have uh, used up your capital gains tax allowance on an annual basis. And by buying them back within your ISA, you've maintained your exposure to the company. Not only will you have got your uh, dividends tax-free, you would also uh, be in a situation where there was no more capital gains tax to pay. If the whole shares are held within a trust, uh, then obviously that's a different matter. Thank you. Duncan, in the case of Morrison, I see that it's now back in the FTSE 100. Have you any thoughts on that? Uh, yes, it's very interesting, that, isn't it? It dropped out of the index, then it was bid for, and then it became big enough to be eligible to be back in the index. And then it goes back into the index, and speculation has taken the share price over the eventual offer price. The reason why I mention that is because of these tracking funds. So you had to sell your Morrisons before the bid. You then have to buy it back at a lot higher price. And if you had to buy it back when it had been put back in the index, and if it came back in the index when it's higher than the current bid price, then you've actually lost money. But not only that, there are companies which have fallen out of the index. So Renishaw has been taken out of the index so you ended up being a forced buyer of Renishaw at an inflated price. The price of Renishaw fell, and now you end up being a forced seller because it's come out of the index. I think that this business with Morrisons actually personifies why we wouldn't want to be, or why we don't get involved in, in tracker funds. Mm. Apart from the fact that you've got the capital lots, you've also got two dealing commissions, haven't you, and some stamp duty. Yeah, I mean, it depends on how, I mean, there's got to be a cost to to all of that, but it just makes it point, the, I think the whole concept of a tracker fund on the FTSE 100 is totally pointless. And I think that is a very good example of the issues which you have. And the other thing is things like Renishaw are a very tight market. Um, so you might end up becoming a forced seller in a tight, very tight market. I think that's a very good point. Mm -hmm. uh, 
investors in the big wide world get carried away by adverts and so-called pundits telling them that the, the cheaper they can buy a product, the better it is for them, which is complete nonsense. Tracker funds, yes, they're probably very cheap to buy. I've no idea, but they are a lousy investment when things like Duncan's just described happen. I think that one of the reasons why people are disappointed by the performance of their portfolios is because they're not paying enough for the service. You can do this all very, very cheaply indeed. But if you are ending up with the problem we've just described, you can now understand one of the reasons why you haven't performed that well. You are better off paying up for a decent fund manager who is going to make long-term capital gains. There would be no point in VW entering a, a badly put together car in Formula One because all it would do is go round at the back. If you're going to do it, you have to invest the money and you want to be at the front, not at the back. This material should not be considered as advice or an investment recommendation. Investors should seek advice from an advisor regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority prior to making investment decisions. All investments carry a degree of risk. The value of investments and any income from them can go up as well as down, and you may not get back the amount originally invested. Information contained in this podcast was true at the time of recording.